Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Senior Congressional Correspondent Mary Bruce. And Mary, pinch hitting for uh, slacking John Carl per usual here. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Mary, uh, it has been uh, more than a week now since the world has gotten to know Rob Porter. Uh, it has been more than a week consumed by the news and the varying explanations from the White House on how a man who uh, stood accused of, uh, of roughing up two ex-wives and another woman, uh, also an accuser, was allowed to work in a high-ranking position in the White House for all of this time. We've seen the White House shift blame, shift explanations, and still grappling with this story that, again, has just absolutely consumed all of Washington's oxygen. And every day it seems that they get further and further into this because of the mixed messages coming from the White House. They just can't seem to get their story straight here. And now, of course, once again, we have a situation where it seems to be the Trump White House versus the FBI, where yesterday you saw the head of the FBI come out and completely contradict the White House's storyline here about who knew what and when. And at the center of all of this, Rick, of course, is the president. And we still have not heard the president say those words directly that so many people have been waiting to hear from him. He has not offered any words to the wives here, the alleged victims of Rob Porter's abuse. The White House press secretary has said the president takes these accusations very seriously, that he supports victims of any type of violence, condemns violence. But he's repeatedly had the opportunity to say that himself, and he's declined every time. And on top of that, we've seen him tweeting a contradictory message, saying that that mere allegations can do drastic harm to people's lives and, and asking questions questions about due process. Yeah, the silence indeed is absolutely deafening. And it also raises a whole host of issues. Uh, it's not just uh, Trump versus the FBI or the Trump White House against itself. It's also now John Kelly and his leadership. And this whole issue of security clearances, mm-hmm. which has been, I think, kind of in the background for a long time. We've known that there have been delays in security clearances for a large number of administration officials. Uh, one of them, by the way, is Jared Kushner, uh, the president's own son-in-law, who's still working on that temporary arrangement. Uh, we're going to talk Talk to the top Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee in a little bit about uh, that and much more, including the the, the, the continuing controversy over the Democratic uh, memo, the response to the Nunes memo. But this issue of security clearances uh, does come front and center. And, and how someone could be allowed to operate like this. We know of the flags that were raised by the FBI. You believe the White House now. It was low-level people, career people in a, an obscure White House office that didn't elevate it properly. But that just does not jive with the the, the, the more general sense of uh, someone should have known. And, and if they didn't know, then it must have been willful. Yeah, and lawmakers we're seeing now, they want to know, too. Look, the the House Oversight Committee, we know, is launching an investigation into Rob Porter's security clearance and then the entire process surrounding this, as well as the communications, the communication breakdown that seemed to occur here somehow between the White House and the FBI. I mean, it just seems that the more you unravel this, the more questions there are. Um, and, and especially as you have, as you mentioned, people currently serving in the White House, currently, you know, helping to brief the president, having access to this classified information, who, who don't have uh, that, that full level of clearance yet. Yeah. And, and I think that that's one question that, you know, a lot of folks at, at the, uh, on Capitol Hill are going to want answers to. Uh, and, and, and look, I think once again, we're seeing a White House that, uh, you know, amid everything else, it seems to get sidetracked with these things. The idea that the president, you know this from Republicans, that the idea that the president is spending any time uh, talking about the men who are accused in this as opposed to the women, that is an uncomfortable thing for folks. Uh, very. And, and it puts Hill Republicans in this really strange, very uncomfortable 
vulnerable position once again. I mean, we just heard Speaker Ryan come out and stressing that if a person who commits domestic violence gets into government, then he says there's a breakdown in the vetting system and that breakdown needs to be addressed. It it, it puts Republicans in a strange position as having to to question the Trump White House. It puts them in an an awkward position of having to defend their positions on women, Uh, raises a lot of questions about, you know, the women issue here that, that this Trump administration continues to, to face. And Republicans, you know, look, they don't want to be talking about this up here. They would much rather be focused on other issues. Yeah, I'm sure they want to be talking about Stormy Daniels instead, right? Yeah. <laughs> How did you know? I yes, I'm, I'm that's sure it, that's no, the but, topic they but, all want to be discussing. And look, and, and the segue there, Mary, if I if I may, is that the president has his own problems with women over the years. And this is Absolutely. a pretty, this is a big headline that, that, that develops here. Michael Cohen is uh, kind of the president's um, pit bull in the private sector is the, the, the term that's been used endearingly <laughs> about Michael Cohen. Uh, he's been known as a fixer and a longtime lawyer for for Donald Trump. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported last month that um, he made a payment of um, $130,000 to Stormy Daniels, the porn star, uh, who has said publicly that uh, that he that she had a sexual encounter with uh, Donald Trump before he was president, but after he was married to Melania about more than a decade ago. Um, she is um, reported to have signed a, non- a confidentiality agreement. The, the suggestion originally was that this was hush money. Now Michael Cohen is coming forward for the first time and saying, I did cut that check. I did write that check, but I did it from my own account, and I didn't do it as part of any kind of a, a broader arrangement. That's important because that would seem to try to duck a potential criminal investigation that would involve campaign finance irregularities. Mm-hmm. That would be an in-kind contribution, or if the money got funneled through, he's saying it was my money. Man, Mary, I hope I have a lawyer as good as that someday. Yeah, we should all have friends like that. Right, huh? right. Um, I mean, it just raises so many questions. First of all, did he really do this out of his own pocket? Did Trump know about this or didn't know about this? I mean, the two of them are thick as thieves. Is it really possible that Cohen cut this check from his personal bank account without the president then candidate knowing the timing of it raises a lot of eyebrows. This was just a couple of weeks b- before the campaign that this check was was you know allegedly sent to Stormy Daniels uh, that Cohen now 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 says actually happened. You know why was that money sent then? It just it, it raises more questions again than it does answers. Yeah, it, it truly and and I I think this is this is just one of those areas where uh, where you know distractions can be welcome sometimes for the White House, but this can't be one. And the White House is declining to comment on this, and they're they're punting over to Michael Cohen entirely. But it's just hard to believe, uh, just strains credulity to think that he would just write this check on on his own. Uh, and and of course, uh, this is Infrastructure Week, take three, as you know, Mary. It's also Budget Week. It's also Immigration Week. How's all that going on Capitol Hill? Oh yeah, it's, it's just as smooth as can be. I mean, poor <laughs> Infrastructure Week is getting quite a bad rap. I mean, anytime it's Infrastructure Week, you know there's going to be some other major storyline, given the way that this always seems to play out. Um, the budget came and came and went. Look, they're always aspirational documents, but, um, the president's budget this year seemed, uh, even more so than in years past, given the political climate, uh, up here on the Hill. And the one thing that there is some glimmers of optimism is immigration. And we're seeing the Senate in in the midst of this freewheeling, free-for-all, kind of really messy immigration debate up here. But even that has been really slow to get off the ground. There's a lot of disagreements there. And Republican leader Mitch McConnell says, look, this is the week that, that, that he's not going to continue this process. He doesn't want this to get too out of hand up here. So he's going to let this open debate, which, by the way, is the way Congress, you know, 
you know, don't tell anyone, but this is the way things used to get done around here. Really? It's so <laughs> to weird, actually though. have an open yeah. formal debate. Imagine that. But Mitch McConnell's going to limit that to just this week. So that means they have just a couple days here to try and hammer out an immigration deal that can pass in the Senate. Then, of course, that goes to the House, where it's going to be completely, you know, changed around. It likely will be made, you know, pulled a little bit further or or much further to the right in an effort to get something that the president can sign. So it's really hard when you look at the calendar, you look at that March 5th DACA deadline that the president set to see how they could get this done by that date. And you're already hearing uh, members of Congress questioning, you know, the timeline in itself, noting that, uh, they may not actually have to get something done by March 5th because of the way that the, the court cases uh, have ruled that, that, it, that it may buy them some more time because the courts have ruled in such a way that allow the current DACA protections to stay in place, at least yeah. for now. And the, the deadline may be a false one, but if the president decides to persist with it, this is a real issue for 800,000 or so young people who, who've got the next three weeks to figure out whether they're going to be legal legal or not in a few weeks' time. And that could affect employment status as well as potential deportation. And we're also going to cover a little bit. I want to talk politics a bit today, of course, 2018 politics. We're going to talk to a top advisor to Mitt Romney, who, uh, by all reports, is about to announce his candidacy for the Senate uh, tomorrow. We're taping today on Wednesday. He's expected to announce tomorrow uh, for Senate in Utah, even though the former Massachusetts governor. Uh, but there's there's been a shift in the 2018 landscape, and we've covered all of this sort of chaos in the White House and the lack of policy movement. However, you have to look at this objectively, Mary, and say there's a bit more of a spring in Republican step these days. Uh, I think the news around uh, Congressman Kramer reconsidering his prospects in North Dakota. That would be a big Republican Mm -hmm. uh, recruit. Bob Corker changing his tune a little bit uh, has been an interesting little storyline. And of course, Mitt Romney. Corker is the most intriguing on on this list to me as Republicans think, well, maybe we need to get serious about how we we save the Senate. You you and the team have been trying to get an answer from him for the last couple of days. It's been uh, been kind of interesting to see him duck it. All these changes of heart, all the recorked jokes that are going on up here, (laughs) but he will not say and does not want to comment. Senator Corker, Uh, At least not to us. And we have tried repeatedly chasing him around the Capitol, uh, whether or not he's actually had this change of heart. Can I try one more time? Are you having conversations about running again? I'm just having conversations about my job. But it is notable, you know, he seems to be enjoying this game. Uh, he, he does like like the, the press chase, it seems. And while he'll say no comment, and I'm not talking about that right now, he's not saying no when you ask if he's <laughs> right. reconsidering. Um, but Corker's in a, in, a, in a bind. I mean, he's in this uh, a tricky position here because Corker, like so many other Republicans on the Hill who have announced that they are not seeking re-election, have then felt free to speak their mind uh, and be bite, quite blunt about uh, what they think of, of what this administration is doing what they think of the president and it's the question remains whether you can kind of put that back in the box um and i just don't know if you can because corker has of course become over the last several months uh, really outspoken on many topics against the president. Yeah, and, and this is, seems to be trying to, to, to shift a little bit as he maybe is reconsidering sticking around. And this is interesting on a couple letter, l- levels. You also have a uh, a, uh, a top flight uh, Republican recruit who's already in the race that uh, doesn't want to get out. And a lot of the outside groups are, are you know, making it known that uh, they're not going to just abandon her because Corker is reconsidering. And then the president himself. I mean, is he going to forget that, that, um, that, 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 that uh, Bob Corker referred to White House staff as an adult daycare. Is he going to forget that he said he feared that the president's policies puts us on a path to World War III? Are those things that, that, that Donald Trump is willing to just forget in the, in, in the hopes of, of saving a Senate seat in Tennessee, which, by the way, 
even his involvement wouldn't get rid of a, a multi-leveled Republican primary and a guy that has done a lot to alienate the base, even without this. Again, the Club for Growth, the Coke Alliance groups, they don't really love Bob Corker, and they were no. sort of happy with seeing things shake out with him not being in the Senate. I am intrigued, though, that someone like Corker, after sounding off about his concerns, would reconsider it all, that he wants to come back. And I think it is reflective a bit of that optimism among Republicans, is that they're seeing the uh, the economy remaining strong, they're seeing the tax cut begin to have a little bit of an impact. Uh, and they look at the overall landscape and they say, look, the president is the president, but there may be an argument they can take that allows them to maintain control. Yeah. And while certainly his words against the president in the past, I'm sure sting, we have seen the president make up with uh, former foes in the past. I mean, Bob Corker did, after all, get a ride on Air Force One just a couple weeks ago. Everyone was joking that it was daycare one. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know, it, it's not unheard of to, to see the president kind of, uh, you know, be able to, to look past some of those things and, and come around and rebuild some of these relationships. But yeah, look, Republicans right now are feeling, uh, they're feeling better, I would say. I don't know if they're feeling fantastic and great <laughs> when they head into the midterms, but, they're, but they, they are feeling like things are maybe a little bit on the up. Uh, you, you know it. All right, now please to be joined here on Powerhouse Politics by the ranking Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Gerald Nadler. Uh, and, and Congressman, I, you may have a longer relationship uh, with President Trump than anyone else. I've seen clips in the New York <laughs> Times of, of State Assemblyman Gerald Nadler talking about uh, uh, proposed Trump developments, that young developer Donald Trump. You've had a, a long history with this guy. So this, this Well, I led the opposition to his um, West Side development starting in 1985, uh, almost for, for almost 20 years. In fact, in, in the I, I got a HUD mortgage uh, guarantee that he had gotten for the project revoked in 1998. I got 12 million dollars worth of earmarks that he had gotten through Congress reprogrammed in the early 2000s. So yeah, yeah, long been for a long time, a, a long history. And now you're at the center of a lot of this at the, at the Judiciary Committee. But I want to talk about the the Rob Porter um, revelations, and I think we've all learned mm-hmm. a lot about. Uh, the 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 clearance process for White House aides for officials with FBI backgrounds, the the latest and and we've we've talked about the shifting story from the White House after the FBI director undercut the the timeline the narrative here. The latest is if you believe the White House, these were career officials in a in a kind of low level personnel security office who had this thing bottled up. Do you find that to be a plausible explanation for how Rob Porter kept the security clearance and and what what else does Congress need to know in this? No, I do not find that to be plausible, and 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 knowing the general credibility of the White House, that they lie all the time, uh, one would not expect it to be plausible. I mean, here you had the FBI uh, uh, director, the appointee of, the, of, of President Trump, testifying in the Senate yesterday as to a timeline of how often, starting almost a year out, they warned the White House uh, that that they weren't giving him uh, that that there were problems with the security application, and eventually they, they said, no, they weren't going to give it to him, and they, and they closed the case. And now Sarah Huckabee Sanders says, well, this went to some obscure office in the White House. I don't believe that. I mean, for, for the staff secretary to the president to be refused a security clearance, and when they closed the case, they refused yeah. the security clearance. They had to tell the chief of staff at minimum. Uh, he had to know that. And the same process is certainly going on with Jared Kushner. I can't believe this. This knowledge is segregated off in some 
in some out-of-the-way office that we've never heard of before. So yeah, let's talk about Jared Kushner, because the president's son-in-law and a, and a, and a, a top White House advisor, a senior advisor to the president, uh, is operating, well, ABC News and other outlets have reported, under this, these temporary security clearances. We know there's been irregularities in some of his disclosures and in multiple amendments to that. Uh, in your view, and we had just yesterday on Capitol Hill, uh, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, he said there's some serious flaws with this with this process. Uh, he thinks it needs to be reformed. Should Jared Kushner have a security pl- clearance if uh, if there are flaws in the process? Should Jared Kushner, as of today, have the security clearances that he has? Well, he's the flaws in the process are not Jared Kushner's fault. That's not the question. But he shouldn't have the security clearance because obviously. They've looked at it, and he 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 uh, did not tell the truth about multiple contacts with Russians and so forth on 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 his application form, and they've had it for over a year. And he is the president's son-in-law and a top uh, advisor to the president. One assumes that they've given uh, uh, some priority to examining this, and and they haven't given it to him, which means they're not, which means they can't give it to him. Now. Uh, uh, I think what, what you have here is that Trump White House is showing a blatant disregard for the national security because the, the, the security clearance vetting process, the purpose of it is to ensure the safety and security of all of us and to maintain the integrity of the government. They haven't taken that responsibility seriously. They have frivolously ignored the concerns raised by investigators, and they continue to feed classified information to uh, Mr. Porter, Mr. Uh, 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 Kushner and others who can't get a security clearance, and therefore they're having this information poses a potential danger to national security. That's why we have the whole national security system in the first place. And this is a, a prime example of the president, Donald Trump, abusing the trust of the American people and placing our security at risk. And that's why, by the way, uh, in, 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 t- today, uh, Congressman Ted Lieu and Congressman Cummings, who's the ranking Democrat on the uh, uh, Oversight and Investigations Committee, and I uh, have introduced a bill to create transparency in White House security clearances and to re- require the White House to report every three months to Congress on the status, uh, uh, the name and position of every individual working in the president's office, the executive office of the president, it's called, who holds a security clearance of any kind or ought to hold a security clearance and hasn't gotten it yet and what's the status uh temporary or permanent and the level of secrecy and um, um what's the status of of the application uh, and only in this way can we stop the abuse because this is an abuse of our security do you think do do heads at the white house need to roll over this particular incident you know there's been so much focus on the chief of staff on john kelly should he step down should he resign or be fired over this well I would say yes. I mean, it's not just uh, uh, Kelly. We should find out who. I mean, I have to believe uh, that 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 he was ultimately responsible. There may have been others too, but and they may have been under direct orders from the president, for that matter. If it turns out that he was executing the direct order of the president, then then well, you can't fire the president, but uh, for this, but um, then I would say. Uh, that's an excuse for him if he was operating under the direct uh, order of the president. But other than that, uh, if you can't prove that, then yeah, he should be, uh, he should step aside and so should anybody else who participates in abusing the security uh, trust of the country. 
Let's turn to the Russia investigation. You obviously released a rebuttal to to the Nunes memo that came out. Yes. We're still waiting on the release of the Democratic memo. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are the next steps here? And why not just release some kind of an overview? Or even, you know, as as I understand it, Democrats could could go to the floor and and read this whole thing right now. Well, Why wait for the president to give this the okay? Well, Democrats under the Constitution, uh, under the speech and debate clause, you could take that and read it, you know, and, and read it into the record on the floor of the House, and they couldn't be criminally prosecuted for that. However, it violates the rules of the House. All kinds of dire penalties could be assessed by the Republican majority in the House. Um, and that, that's not the way to do it. Frankly, um, I put out my memo uh, about 10 days ago, I suppose, after the Nunes memo came out, because I didn't trust the president uh, to be fair and allow the Democratic memo to see the light of day, and certainly not very quickly. And I knew, having read the Nunes memo and the underlying documents and, and other things, how mi- wildly misleading the Nunes memo is of course the FBI came out and said it's, it's materially misleading by omission effects. So I put out my memo uh, without using classified documents to show to make essentially four points. That you know the, the Nunes memo essentially says, and the whole thing is an exercise in three card monte. Don't pay attention to the Mueller investigations going on. Look at this nonsense instead. And what is this nonsense? The Mueller investigation, the, the, the central thesis is, and, and what the president says, he's been totally exonerated which had not, by the Nunes memo, which in fact didn't even mention the president or his conduct. Um, the, the, but the basic thesis is the Mueller investigation is somehow tainted and is untrustworthy because it came out of the uh, uh, FISA warrant uh, the, against Carter Page, uh, which was which was issued improperly because of uh, because the judges weren't told that part of the underlying documentation, namely the Steele memo, uh, Steele dossier, was uh, was paid for in part by Hillary's campaign, and therefore we should ignore the whole investigation. We made four points. Number one, um, the FISA warrant was not dependent solely on the Steele. Uh, dossier. It was dependent on a lot of other things. Uh, the Nunes memo makes no attempt to show that uh, rules out. Makes no attempt to show uh, that there may have, that there was no no considerable evidence beyond the Steele dossier. Number one. Number two. The inve- the, the Nunes memo itself it sh- says in the last sentence and sort of sort of buries it there that the investigation was ongoing months earlier. Before that warrant, it was started because of uh, revelations about Mr. Papadopoulos, uh, by Mr. Papadopoulos, to an Australian uh, 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 government official who reported it to the FBI. So whatever may have happened with that warrant, and whether that FISA warrant was good or badly issued, uh, with or without the Steele dossier, is irrelevant to the basic point that the investigation was started earlier and for different reasons. The third point is that... Um, 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 uh, Rosenstein. We, we were afraid that, uh, I'm afraid, that they were going to try to use this uh, memo to, to discredit uh, Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, and to replace and to justify his firing, which would enable them to get at, at Mueller. Uh, and we were afraid of this because in the Nunes memo it says that Rosenstein signed off on the last FISA warrant renewal. It was the, the the warrant was granted and then renewed three times every ninety days. It's got to be renewed, and he signed off on one of them and says it had to be the last one because he wasn't attorney general before the last one. But the rules provide that 
for, for the court to grant a, a FISA warrant renewal, which is what Rosenstein signed off on, the, the application for it, you have to show the court that the previous FISA warrant and renewals were productive of information, that they found more information showing that Carter Page was a foreign agent. So it would have been improper for, um, 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 for, new, for, for Rosenstein or anybody else not to sign off on the renewal if the existing FISA warrants uh, brought information showing that Page was a foreign agent. And finally, um, the existence uh, or the issuance by the Republicans of this very misleading uh, memo uh, really shows that the Republicans in Congress have become uh, enablers uh, of, of Trump's abuse of the whole system. They've become enablers in the attempt to discredit and, and, and distract, discredit, detract attention from the real issue, which is the investigation of whether of the Russians interfe- interfering in our election and of the Trump campaign certainly colluding with them, and maybe Trump, maybe not, but the campaign certainly did, we know that. Um, and that is a central investigation, and what they've now become in, uh, complicit in is trying is what the Nunes memo tries to do, and what the what the administration is trying to do, which is to uh, take attention away from the investigation, focus on uh, trivial irregular, uh, trivial uh, other things like the the FISA application for for as if that FISA application really has much to say about the investigation, um, and and discredit the investigation so that whatever report it comes up with at the end of they want to be able to discount it. Um, it's like a three-card Monty game. Don't look at what the important stuff over here. Look at the nonsense over there. Is the memo now on rewrite? Are you giving another F- attempt to, to get it? Uh, is your understanding from the intelligence? You mean, you mean, you mean the Schiff memo? The, yeah, the, the Democratic uh, version. The yeah. Democratic memo, uh, they always said, and you know, I'm not part of the Intelligence Committee, but remember the, uh, Adam Schiff and the Democrats always said that um, they understood that... Uh, uh, their memo would would uh, uh, well. Let's step back once. Remember, the president released the Nunes memo without, despite the FBI saying that the Nunes memo was dangerous, and the Department of Justice saying it was it was totally misleading. That the release of that memo was dangerous to national security because of of, of perhaps for for unstated reasons. But he released it anyway without having read it, and never mind that the FBI and the Justice Department said you shouldn't do it. Now he's being hypocritical, double standard, different standard, and he says, well, the uh, Democratic memo uh, gives that information uh, that, that shouldn't be given out because it, 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 may be, it may expose secrets. Well, the Democrats always said they were perfectly happy to have the FBI. In fact, they submitted it to the FBI a couple of weeks ago um, to say that the FBI should... Uh, vet the memo and take out whatever is necessary to protect sources and methods. But the president hasn't even agreed that once the FBI says that the release is okay, that he will release it. Right. Because, right. So and, the real and, yeah. reason of the president is he doesn't want, he wants to bottle up 
what would be an embarrassing to him because it shows what nonsense the Nunes memo was. Hey, Congressman, before we let you go, uh, Michael Cohen. I imagine if you've known Donald Trump a long time, you've known Michael Cohen for a long time, or at least no, know I the name not. of Michael no, I, Cohen. I did not, but okay, that's no, interesting. Other okay. than from the press, no. Well, the, the story out in the last uh, in the last day is that uh, the president's lawyer says he he gave this money to the porn star out of his own pocket, not because there was any truth to any allegation, but just because it was a problem that he could help make go away. Do you find that to be a plausible explanation that this wasn't hush money and this wasn't potentially an illegal campaign contribution? I don't find it plausible um, uh, for for a private attorney to pay one hundred thirty thousand dollars out of his own pocket for for no particular reason. Uh, it, 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 it probably, I shouldn't say probably, it's quite likely that it was, in fact, to hush money, that it was, in fact, it may have been an illegal campaign contribution. This certainly ought to be investigated. Congressman Gerald Nadler, thank you so much for being with us, the, the ranking Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. And Mary, when we come back, we're going to talk to a top campaign advisor, a longtime advisor to Mitt Romney about his potential run in Utah. Hey, this is Dan Harris, and uh, I want to tell you about my podcast called 10% Happier. You can listen every Wednesday for new guests and new perspectives. Some of these are people you know, uh, celebrities, athletes, executives. Uh, Some of them are uh, more obscure people that I'm obsessed with that I think you might be obsessed with once you uh, give them a listen. And you can hear about how they're using meditation to up their game in all these interesting areas of life. Again, the podcast is called 10% Happier. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and subscribe today. Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba. Ariana Huffington. Issa Rae. Barbara Corcoran. Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. Now joining us here on Powerhouse Politics, Ron Kaufman, the legendary, I may say, a national committeeman from, uh, on the, for the Republican National Committee from Massachusetts, a longtime uh, political advisor, consigliere to Mitt Romney. Uh, Mr. Kaufman, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. Well, it's great to be with Mary. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so Ron, uh, what's he going to say tomorrow? We're waiting for the big announcement on Thursday. What are we going to hear from Mitt Romney? That is. Probably going to run for Senate. <laughs> probably, probably. Okay, so let's we can we can play the game a little bit. But if he runs, sure. If he runs, yeah, right. What kind of message would he bring to the campaign? What kind of message would Mitt Romney bring to the United States Senate? Well, it's a great question, Rick. Uh, the truth is, um, he's doing it, in my opinion, if he does it, for one reason. He really does believe in service to country. Uh, he's proven that all his life, and and. Uh, I think he brings a special quality uh, to Utah um, in the Senate that will be uh, kind of bring a center, uh, if you if you will, to the Senate. And by center, I don't mean the ideological center. I mean kind of the way he was governor of Massachusetts, Rick, mm-hmm. where he had 140 reps, only 20 were Republicans. He had 40 senators, only four. Republicans, but he was able to bridge the gap between 
the House and the Senate and Republicans and Democrats and, and be the, the centrist, again, not ideologically, of a, of, a, of a government to make sure people work together and get things done. Now, if he does come up here to the Senate, he could be a pretty formidable foe to the president. Mitt Romney certainly has not shied away from taking on Donald Trump. In fact, we've assembled some, some of the greatest hits. Take a quick listen. Donald Trump is a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. He's playing the members of the American public for suckers. He gets a free ride to the White House, and all we get is a lousy hat. His domestic policies would lead to recession. His foreign policies would make America and the world less safe. He has neither the temperament nor the judgment to be president, and his personal qualities would mean that America would cease to be a shining city on a hill. That's pretty harsh stuff. How would a Senator Mitt Romney square that, or a candidate Mitt Romney square that, running as a Republican? Well, I think these men and women that get elected a senator or a congressman or president know that what is spoken in the blood sport of the campaign is different than what is spoken in the halls of Congress or the White House. So you put it all in perspective. You, in, campaigns are tough and things are said, and, and uh, even if they're said in earnest during the campaign, it's about governing. It's not about politics now. And it shifts, and I think Mitt will, will work hard to make sure that he can help build consensus to get things accomplished. But do you think he doesn't believe those things anymore, where they just can't? I mean, no. that was, we remember that moment. That wasn't just an offhand thing. He scheduled a formal speech to deliver this rebuke at that time in the hopes of blocking Donald Trump from becoming the nominee. Does he Does he not believe what he said two years ago? No, not at all. That's not the, that's not the, the proper context. The bottom line, in campaigns, people believe what they say and mean it. But then once the, the voters have spoken... You then move on to governing. You remember when when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, made his famous voodoo economics uh, economic statement to, to Ronald Reagan's economic policy during the campaign? They served eight great years together. Right. You know, so it, it, it's part of the sport of politics. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't like it, but it is what it is, and it has nothing to do with how you govern. So if he were to come up here to the Hill, do you think he would, uh, would we be hearing him check the president on some of these issues, like some of his other Republican colleagues, or would he uh, be looking to, to build more consensus with the with the White House? I mean, would, is he going to be a check on the president up here? Uh, I, I think he's going to do what's best for, for, for Utah and the country. I mean... Uh, he, he is running to be the senator from Utah, not the senator for the country, you know. And he, I think he'll do the right thing. I think he he will be a steward of uh, of uh, understanding that you've got to get things accomplished. And the American public, I think, are frustrated. The reason Donald Trump is president is because the Americans were frustrated that we weren't getting things done in Washington. And I think Mitt will be kind of a John Quincy Adams esque senator, if you will. You know, Adams had three public uh, roles in life. He's a great Secretary of State. He's a great one-term president. And he, but he was even a better member of Congress when he became the senator of the, in a very contentious Cong- Congress back in those days and was a consensus builder and is praised for it. And I think that's the kind of person, I believe, the kind of senator uh, Mitt would make 
if he does run. <laughs> good, good Massachusetts son uh, the, as, as well, those Massachusetts roots for, for John Quincy Adams. He would not be, uh, you, you, I think you referenced this, but he would not be your typical freshman senator. Uh, he'd be older, we believe, than any freshman senator ever elected to a full, popularly elected to a full six-year term. Oh, Mitt's in great health. I'm not questioning that at, that, at all. He's, yeah. he, he, that, guy, that guy knows how to, how to stay fit. Uh, but, but Rick, he, if you look as good as him, you'd feel good, too. <laughs> oh, there you go. Good hair, too. Uh, listen, but but is he, he, he as the as his status as a former nominee, as a former two-time uh, candidate for president, he's raised money for almost every one of his Republican colleagues. He's been a go-to voice in national politics for a decade now. Uh, he was a he was a governor before that, of course. Um, is he, he does he need any kind of special arrangements? I mean, did, should he get a committee chairmanship or something else to recognize the fact that he isn't? You know, he's going to come in his 100th in seniority, um, particularly from a smaller state like Utah by population. Uh, does, does he need a special status as a senator? No. I think his place in life is set by not what's going to happen, but what has happened. And he does have a great relationship with almost every member of the Senate, both Republicans and Democrats. I think he is, you know, sometimes you run for president and you come out damaged. And sometimes you come out better. And in many ways, Mitt stronger now than he was when he was running for president. Um, and I, I think people will respect him. I think, that, I think people forget the real coin of the realm up in the Senate, in the House too, but particularly in the Senate, is respect. I mean, people, Republicans never got allowed to take Kennedy ideologically, but they respected him and got things done. And I think that Mitt will be able to, to use that coin or the realm, if you will, that respect, to help get things done. Let's talk geography for a second here, because there are bound to be some sure. questions. You have the former uh-huh. uh, governor of Massachusetts running for the seat for Utah. You, of course, we noticed, you couldn't help but notice that, that, that hours after this speculation started to brew that he was going to actually jump in the race, he changed the locator on his Twitter account from Massachusetts to Utah. How do you, what's the response to questions about the inevitable uh, sort of conflict? And, and, and Ron, do you still have notes from the residency challenge? You, you remember when, when Democrats sued to right. say that he actually was a resident of Utah and he shouldn't run for governor of Massachusetts. Well, I, I remember that well, but I, I, I remember people questioning whether whether uh, Robert Kennedy should be able to run for Senate from New York or Hillary Clinton from New York also. Uh, and as we all know, that that's not in anywhere in the Constitution about having to be there before you're elected. And, and the truth is, the bottom line, the people of Utah will decide whether that's an issue or not. And as you, Rick, as you know well, he is really beloved in Utah. And he's beloved not because he happens to be a Mormon or not because he ran for president, because when he was brought in to fix the Salt Lake Winter Olympics in, in 2002, there was a huge deficit, huge hole. They're about to pull the Olympics out of Utah, and he saved it. And people love the way he governed uh, as the president of the Salt Lake uh, Olympics. And to this day, you walk down the street of Salt Lake with anybody, with Mitt Romney, and you know you're with a rock star. And Ron, before we let you go, uh, and you've been generous with your time here talking about uh, Mitt Romney and this potential run. You're, you're a long, long-time uh, national committeeman uh, for the RNC, and I want to ask you about Steve Wynn because a lot of people have been pointing out what they view as a double standard in the, in the RNC's handling of Steve Wynn vis-a-vis the Harvey Weinstein story. After Harvey Weinstein broke. 
big calls from Ronald Romney McDaniel, coincidentally, Mitt's uh, niece, calling for all of the Weinstein money to be returned by Democrats. Steve Wynn has been ousted from his job as the national campaign finance chair for the RNC, but the money still stands. Should, shouldn't the RNC just take really its own advice on Harvey Weinstein, be free of the money, particularly in this broader context of all the women that have come forward against so many powerful men to say, look, when, when someone comes in and does something like this, uh, we don't want to be any part of, of, of what he has done in terms of money for a party. Now, I'd say this. There's one big difference between when and and uh, Weinstein is Weinstein that he was guilty and and uh, and Mr. Wynn is not. Having said that, this I have two daughters. I, I'm outraged by all this stuff. I, I think it, as much as you hate it, uh, what's happening now, it's, it's a good thing. I think it's, it's going to bring people uh, to think more about this issue. And as you know, Rick, three, one out of every three families in this country are subject to abuse at home. And anything that brings that to light, I think it's a good thing. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, Lana immediately upon hearing that story, got him to resign <clears throat> and, uh, and did the exact right thing. Uh, and um, I, I think that the party um, stands behind it for doing it. And you think that's enough? You don't think anything more needs to be done unless he admits it? Or if therefore it's proven? What if it's proven? What if some of these things are one of the, one well, of the of forms? Course, of course. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. Up, up until now, uh, there, there's one woman that, whose name surfaced, and which he denies vehemently. Uh, it, 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 it becomes obvious that he's not telling the truth, and there is more to this. I think that check will be handled very quickly. <laughs> fair, <laughs> not, fair. not that it's a lot, by the way. Not right. that it's a lot, but not, it's not the point. It's not the, the amount is not the point. You're right. It, it, it's, it, it's the point is the point, and, and uh, I, I think she's done the right things. I, I do think it's... It, it, Again, having said that, this stuff is hideous, and we, we should be talking not about victims and not even not, not even perpetrators per se. We should be talking about how we fix the uh, the problem and, and that's come to be hysteric in this country. Um, but uh, I, I guarantee you, uh, as soon as it's clear that it, what is is not is, um, that money will go back immediately, if not sooner. All right. Ron Kaufman, uh, Republican National Committeeman from Massachusetts and a, a Mitt Romney advisor. We look forward to, to seeing uh, what news is made out of Utah in the coming days. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Mary. So, Mary, I, I think you'd agree it would be quite an intriguing addition to the Senate. I mean, it, it, there's not a serious primary challenge out in Utah, and I think it's such a it's such a, a red state anyway. And Mitt Romney, I mean, Ron's right. He is he is viewed um, in a in a very favorable way, particularly in the season of the Winter Olympics, for what he did to turn around the Salt Lake Games and make those the success that they were. That launched a political career that almost landed him in the White House. If it lands him in the Senate instead, he would come to the Senate uh, totally different than uh, than than anyone um, that was currently there, or maybe really any historical parallel. Maybe you have to go back to someone like John Quincy Adams to find that, or, you know, a former vice president who comes back, something like that. It, it, it's not a, not a usual circumstance to have a Mitt Romney in the Senate. Not at all. And it would absolutely shake things up here on the Hill. Although I have to say, I was pretty struck by by how Ron sort of seemed to say that, that, that Mitt Romney might kind of walk back some of his criticisms of the president if he were up here. Obviously, he would be in a completely different position. You know, holding office is very different from, from a campaign environment. But still, I think a lot of people see Mitt Romney 
jumping into this race and they think that he's going to be a real fierce opponent for the president up here on the Hill. And, and Ron seemed to suggest that, hey, he may, he may fall in line a bit more than, than we might have suspected. Yeah. And I think particularly uh, in this in this era, there's been some different senators that have been kind of the go to voice of or conscience of the Republican Party. Uh, you, we talked earlier about Bob Corker. I think at times he's been that uh, he's muted his criticism. Jeff Flake certainly has done that. Jeff, mm, what uh, do they all have in common? Well, I was, yeah, that's that, that, that's true. And the fact is, you know, with, with Senator McCain, uh, who's, you know, also he came back to the Senate after having run for president and had that exalted profile. He is a national hero, truly. Uh, but him with him battling health problems, there's been a bit of a void for people who would say uh, in a public forum in a way that uh, as a current office holder, this isn't right. This isn't acceptable. I don't, this is not what the party or the country should stand for. There's been at times a, a, a dearth of those voices. And I think it wouldn't be on every issue. And I think anyone who would look for Mitt Romney to suddenly become a liberal or to, to vote against the president uh, and his agenda all the time, I don't think you understand what, what drives him. But I, I'd have to think there would be issues um, if he's elected and over the next two years or, or six years of, uh, of the Trump presidency that Mitt Romney would be made uncomfortable enough that he would speak out. And, and I think he'd be careful about using that platform, having enjoyed um, his platform in national politics in, in, to varying degrees over, over different amounts of time in different ways. Uh, but I don't think he would look to abuse it either. I, I don't think you'd look for kind of daily denunciations of whatever the Trump White House is doing. No, no. And, and obviously we shall see, but it certainly is a different environment up here these days and changing by the second. You know, we were saying what happens if Corker does stick around? Because yeah. Right now, the most vocal uh, opponents of the president up here on the Hill are those who are eyeing the exits. That's a, a really good point. All right. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Mary, it's been fun having you. Thanks thank for doing it. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you, John always. Carl, for going on vacation so uh, I can fill in. There you go. All right. Our thanks to Dave Rind, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, our excellent producing team, as always. Please uh, download us, subscribe on Apple iTunes, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing your feedback about it. Use the hashtag PowerhousePolitics or, or find me on Twitter at Rick Klein. We're going to be back later in the week with a special edition uh, talking to the author of a new book that uh, takes a spiritual biographical look at, at Donald Trump. It's a really interesting read. I'm excited to bring you that conversation later in the week. We'll be back next week with a fresh episode, maybe with John, maybe we won't let him back. We'll have to see about that. Uh, but thanks all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. 